Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, April 21st. We begin with a look at the latest from Ottawa. We catch up with Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block, Mercedes Stevenson, on the federal government announcing new measures aimed at helping Canada's most vulnerable during this COVID-19 crisis. Next, we get an update on the deadly shooting in Nova Scotia. Global News Halifax and New Brunswick reporter Sarah Ritchie has the latest, including the continued search for more potential victims. And then we hear the heart-wrenching story of a Calgary woman with a connection to the Nova Scotia attacks. We speak with Tammy Oliver McCurdy about her sister, Jolene Oliver, who was killed along with her partner and their 15-year-old daughter. It's a local organization making a difference across the country. We find out how Soup Sisters is providing nourishment and comfort to families in crisis during the COVID-19 pandemic. And finally, details on a very unique way to stay entertained in isolation. We learn about the Story Calls program, where you can request a storyteller to call you and tell you a story for free. 609 on the morning news and we are joined now by Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block to talk all things uh, national, if you will, including COVID-19. But I want to start, uh, Mercedes, by the way, good morning. Good morning. I want to talk about this this battle between, you know, the CPC, the standout party saying, you know, we have to meet in person. We have to meet more often. Looks like that is a no-go as far as what Andrew Shear and company were hoping for. Well, certainly not as much as they were hoping for anyhow. And it, it's been a really interesting thing to, to discuss and to look at because, you know, people think, ah, politicians, whatever. They meet, they, it's a lot of hot air, and nothing <laughs> comes of it. But in, in particular, in a minority government situation, um, you're talking about something very different than we saw under uh, the governments that were elected in 2015 and 2011 because they were majorities. So you would argue in those cases, although... Uh, you know, as a fan of democracy, I would not. Uh, but just because they were majorities, they didn't need the same kind of uh, opportunity to be checked by the opposition. They could pass anything they wanted to at the end of the day, but we still have a government that, that has to be questioned. Uh, in a minority situation, that's even more the case. So I think it was not even a question of should they meet, it's how do they do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and looking to other countries, and there have been those who have argued, look, Parliament met all the way through World War One, World War Two. Absolutely true. That war wasn't contagious, though. So there is a different element in terms of having people meet in small spaces. Um, and it, it, I could tell you the old center block before it underwent renovations was quite spacious. West Block is not. Uh, and that is not, by the way, to say that any one party is right, but that there are very real challenges to figuring that out. Now, on the other hand, the problem with doing a virtual parliament, it takes time because a lot of MPs live in rural areas where Internet is not that bad. Right. In some places, you can't even get a cell signal. So they have to figure out essentially satellite potentially capabilities for people to be able to do that. Not to mention security. You wouldn't want 338 MPs, computers, all accessible at the same time. So there's there's a lot of questions on, on how exactly it can and should look and whether it's going to work, uh, but we'll see. We will see. There'll be no doubt more talk about it for sure. Uh, Mercedes, uh, we're expecting a little more info from the PM today when he speaks in terms of new measures for different uh, you know groups of the of the society that are not really getting any money at this point. Yeah, so I can tell you uh, that officials are telling us he's going to talk about the most vulnerable Canadians. Now, we're not sure what group he means by that, or it could be groups. Uh, typically, he has talked about youth, 
elderly, uh, those with disabilities, when he's talking about the most vulnerable. I know there's been a lot of concern out there from folks with disabilities who say, um, you know, they're not able to make it to their appointments the same way they could have. Their mm-hmm. expenses have increased. They're worried about home care. Um, same with the elderly. A, a lot of folks who saved very carefully lost their money when the markets crashed yeah. uh, through no fault of their own. And that may be essentially what they're relying on for their post-retirement income. So I'm not sure it's going to be either of those groups, but he has promised to do more for both. So this may be an indicator that something is coming down the pipe on that. How about the energy industry? Because that is something that's been hammered in the past 24 hours with historically low prices. I know Jason Kennedy saying, hey, federal government, we uh, thank you for what you've done so far, but we need more. Can we see anything coming down the pipe to bolster or some, you know, uh, I guess uh, uh, light at the end of the tunnel for the energy industry coming out of the federal government? You know, I I actually had the Natural Resources Minister on the show on Sunday and asked him that question because they introduced some measures, you know, the well cleanup and the borrowing, uh, which, by the way, doesn't have an overall cap on that program. It does for company, but not overall for the business. doesn't address the issues with especially the big oil companies because they don't qualify and in many cases the needs for liquidity. Um, they've talked about understanding that this is a big issue. Seamus O'Regan told me that when they had these cabinet meetings, it sort of really hit them uh, that Canada is the fourth largest oil producer in the world. And that's very significant, not just here, but for the oil that's exported that a lot of people rely on. Uh, so how to deal with that when you've also made promises about the environment? Remember when Bill Morneau told us that an aid package was hours away, and that was weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing they might be doing, and this is a big might still, is looking at tying a liquidity package that would go towards the oil sands also in with airlines and tourism. Okay. That might make it more politically palatable for them. Uh, it wouldn't be industry and it would be credit, it wouldn't be a bailout. But we don't know because, honestly, they're still trying to hammer this out behind the scenes. Uh, and obviously, there's a sense of urgency in Alberta. So we're still waiting to hear a little bit more on that. Okay, and have you heard anything more about uh, the reports that the government sending planes to China to pick up some medical equipment and came back completely empty because it had gone to other countries? <laughs> that one specifically uh, but I can tell you that Christopher Freeland has said that it's essentially the wild west out there yeah. when it comes to getting uh, equipment and we know that countries have been buying it out from under each other which was part of that whole G7 meeting the Prime Minister had late last week uh, was that they were trying to coordinate strategy but that doesn't mean that everyone out there is playing ball. Mercedes, it's been the past week or so in the city of Calgary finally we have some spring and uh, we're seeing more and more people stretching their legs and Hearing word, uh, you know, from uh, listeners as well that people are congregating in, uh, you know, city parks and uh, those pathways are getting filled up. I'm wondering about the nation's capital. Are people getting stir crazy? Are you seeing more and more people out and about and perhaps crossing the lines of social distancing? I I would say... I haven't where I am. I'm downtown, uh, which is largely emptied out because everyone who works here is working from home. Mm -hmm. But I've certainly heard the the frustration from people that they don't feel that there's an end in sight. And one of the challenges the government has is they have to find a way to convince people to stay home so that it doesn't spread. Um, But they also have to be able to kind of show a a path forward or people feel like they're never going to get out. And that sense of frustration and hopelessness... uh, doesn't lead anywhere good. So it's certainly a concern. Now, the city of Ottawa has been ticketing people like 
crazy uh, and it's been very controversial like how often they've been doing it um, whether that's that's effective and necessary or whether it's overkill and I think it's really being debated in a lot of cities but they're still sending that key message yes it's nice outside go out for a walk up uh, but no don't congregate don't sit in parks um, there's still a risk of spreading and while it looks like in some provinces the curve is flattening as soon as people come trotting back out it will go back up so the government's got to figure out a way to see the weather gets nicer and people perhaps feel less compliant with this order to encourage them to still listen to that and to try to get to a place where people can come back out again as soon as possible. That's going to be a difficult one to do right across the country. We're already seeing it here in Calgary. I imagine it's the same everywhere, but uh, we'll be watching it and we'll be watching the Prime Minister as he speaks at 9.15. Thanks for joining us, Mercedes. Always appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Take care. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. And, you know, I just wanted to mention uh, quickly, too, that there is going to be a national virtual vigil Friday night to honour the victims of the deadliest mass shooting in Canada in Nova Scotia over the weekend. So uh, we'll be following and give you more details on that. But it looks like it'll go on Friday evening as people cannot gather in large groups to remember the folks who were killed. It's 17, 719 right now. And joining us once again this morning is Sarah Ritchie, anchor and reporter for Global News in Nova Scotia. Uh, and she is joining us uh, to chat once again with the latest update on the situation from the weekend. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Are we hearing anything further from police other than they are still expecting to find more crime scenes and, and potentially more bodies? Well, uh, what we heard late yesterday from Nova Scotia RCMP is that they're reasonably confident that the 16 different crime scenes they have uncovered so far are uh, the extent of what they will find. But they do believe they will find more bodies. And the reason for that is that at least five of these crime scenes include structure fires. Uh, most of them are homes that were burned completely to the ground in, uh, in the sort of chaos of what had happened overnight Saturday into Sunday. And so they are concerned at this point that they will find bodies in those homes that they haven't completely gotten through yet. Um, so we do expect another update from Nova Scotia RCMP at some point today, today and we're hoping, uh, I guess, at that point that we will get a, a final death toll and, and, you know, some relief, I guess, for Nova Scotians to have a little bit of, of knowledge of what's happened here. Sarah, what's it like for residents uh, close to some of these crime scenes? Are they even allowed into their homes? Is it, is it kind of a lockdown scenario? Um, I don't, you know, I haven't been out to, to Port-a-Pic in particular. I can say that the Port-a-Pic Beach Road is being blocked off. Um, but we were speaking with residents from the area there yesterday. Our reporter Ashley Field was out uh, talking to people in the area. It does appear that most people are, are able to be home, but I actually don't know whether, um, you know, the people in the direct vicinity of those crime scenes are at home. Sarah, there's lots of questions, you know, now being thrown about as to why the province's emergency alert system wasn't used. In fact, it sounds like RCMP used Twitter to get the information out, but not everybody got it. Yeah, this is going to be a huge focus of the sort of debrief of all of this as we start to look back on what happened and how it occurred. Um, it's really important to know that that Nova Scotia RCMP put out a tweet on Saturday evening. I think it was around 11.35 p.m. They put out a tweet that said there was a, a firearms complaint or a weapons complaint being investigated, and it asked people to stay at home if they were in the area. Now, that kind of a tweet 
frankly, doesn't really raise any alarm bells for, for those of us in the media. There was no press release. There was no alert to the media that something was going on. And it wasn't until 8.30 the next morning that we got another tweet from RCMP. So you think about the gap in time there of how much time had passed and how, how much of this crime potentially occurred. We don't exactly know the timeline yet, but, but just how much that, uh, that shooter may have moved throughout the province as all of this was happening. Certainly a lot of questions as to why that alert wasn't used. Uh, the RCMP yesterday said they don't have an answer for that yet. They're hoping to get us an answer for why they didn't use that alert system. Uh, as for the province, which is actually in charge of that, the Emergency Measures Office is actually in charge of sending out those alerts. They say they were not asked to send an alert out. Um, you know, we got one last week because of the pandemic that we're in. We were told to stay at home because of the pandemic over the Easter long weekend. And and I think a lot of Nova Scotians are asking themselves why that alert system wasn't used and, and hopefully we'll be able to get some answers, but it's going to be a focus of this investigation. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Sarah. Thanks very much. That is Sarah Ritchie, anchor and reporter for Global News in Nova Scotia. 649. Police in Nova Scotia warning the death toll from the weekend's rampage could rise today. The death toll currently at 19. One of those lives lost was Jolene Oliver, who was killed along with her partner and their 15-year-old daughter. Jolene's sister, Tammy Oliver McCurdy, lives here in the Calgary area. She joins us now. Good morning, Tammy. Good morning. Uh, first off, we are so very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Just, uh, you know, wondering, what's your plan? Do you, do you head home now? I mean, it's got to be so difficult with the, the pandemic in place and you've got, you know, you have to stay away from your relatives at this point. But, you know, are you heading home to the Maritimes to be with your family? Uh, well, most of my sister's side of the family lives in Alberta. Okay. And so she moved out there five years ago for my husband's, uh, her husband's um, mother was super sick. So Aaron... And the family decided to move out there and take care of his mom. Um, at that time, his dad passed away and he took over the house that uh, that was the house that they died in. And then his mom passed away a few months ago. So um, fortunately, his parents don't have to grieve the death of his son and his family, but my parents do. And we're all here in Alberta and it's struggling being so far away. I just want to you know her house is still standing mm -hmm. we're very fortunate for that so we can get some of her things but we can't get there because we have to be quarantined for 14 days and i know her spirit is still in that house and i would just like to go sit with that for a while i'm sure yeah Tammy, we were um, all following the devastating news over the weekend. It seemed to be coming fast and furiously. I'm wondering, is that something you and your family were doing, was watching the news and worrying, or did you not even know about the incident? I, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how you found out about this loss. Oh. Well, my mom called her in the morning, and she wasn't responding. So then, you know, everybody was calling and text messaging and, and Facebook messaging her, uh, her and Emily, Emily's a 17-year-old child. Those kids live on Facebook, and she wasn't responding. Erin wasn't responding. And so I found out because my grandma had, um, I, I was helping out a long-term care facility working there, just disinfecting all sorts of things. Um, and my grandma was in that facility, so she came down and asked me if I knew. 
And so I said, well, let me message her and stuff. And nothing came and nothing came. And so we, we literally waited the entire day, um, not knowing if she was dead, live, missing in the hospital. So I called every hospital I could and nothing. Um, and at 7, 7.30 at night, we were we were told that they found three bodies in the house that couldn't be identified at this time. So they're working on that. Um, but that's their house. That's the three of them. And, you know, my heart goes out to the people who don't have answers. I'm still talking to a gentleman on Facebook who who still has no answers about his parents. And so, like I just, it's a lot to take in. Yeah, it's just, it's such a tragic situation. I mean, I don't think there's anything anybody can say to you other than we're with you. You know, you've got all the, the entire country behind you and, and we feel your pain and, and we wish you the best. And, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Tammy Oliver McCurdy. Her sister, Jolene Oliver, was lost in the weekend rampage in Nova Scotia. 909 on your Tuesday morning and COVID-19 will likely impact the economy for months, maybe years, but some say reopening businesses cannot wait until the virus is completely eradicated. So how will the economy start back up again once it's time? We're joined this morning by Lauren Falkenberg, Senior Associate Dean of Business at the University of Calgary. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning. Hey, thanks for joining us. You know, once the government, whether it be provincial or federal, says it's time, how do we start to reopen things? I think we have to go through phases and we have to continually monitor that we keep that reproduction rate of the of COVID below one. But I also think that we leave it to businesses in each of the phases. We're actually probably in the first phase. And um, I was looking at some stats last night, and I realized that about 70% of our economy is still functioning. Uh, So the businesses that are really being hit and not functioning, obviously, are travel, recreation, art, entertainment. But we, I think, need to think about how we can roll out this economy with uh, people who can work at home, staying at home and working, and then opening the other phases with the creativity that we've seen business already develop. So can you give us some examples? You say you're going to leave it to the businesses. That's perhaps the best way to go. Examples of businesses who might be bold enough and ready to take those next steps? Well, I think let's start with what's already happening. Uh, We've got businesses who have demonstrated real nimbleness, which I'm going to argue is, let's say, the grocery stores who had to do it first. Mm -hmm. Um, The three things that absolutely have to happen is social distancing, soap and water, and and hand sanitizing. Face masks may come into part of this as well. But if businesses can show that they can adjust to those three factors, keep their uh, both their employees and their uh, clients or customers safe, we should give them that chance to be creative. And so when I say people who still have to work at home, there are groups who I think should be the last phases of the rollout. So where you have to have large groups, such as, I'm going to argue, universities, um, where you, you know, recreation such as pro hockey, but they can get creative too. And they can say, here's how we're going to manage this so that people still can see their hockey and we can still run a business. It may not be full out, 
but at least it's running. In your thoughts, do we do we start sort of low and slow and go start with the city and then you start to open up the province or do you just, you know, let things go, as you said, with businesses that feel they're ready? I think we have to start with some of the, uh, with businesses. I, when I've been reading a lot on this, what I've noticed is that there's two lines of thinking. One is we absolutely have to shut down the economy um, and protect people and we don't take into account all the other costs and their suicide rates domestic abuse all of the things that are just as costly to our society and then there's another group who are saying well government has to come in and absolutely have total control and i disagree with both of them i think there's something in the middle that says business has nimbleness creativity and we can slowly open up businesses. The reason I'm going phased in, start with your smaller business, move to your um, larger implications like larger retail. We can learn from what we've already done, from what small businesses have done. We can apply that. We can monitor the reproduction rate of the, the virus. And we can move forward. From your research, uh, what do you think? I know nobody has a crystal ball, but are we talking months Till we see things as normal as we, we can, or is this going to take a couple of years? I think this is going to take a couple of years. That's why we've got to get the economy up and running. And so a couple of years to get rid of the COVID. So people call it a suppression model. We move into a suppression model where we really manage it, monitor that reproduction rate. Um, and so we've got to get those testing kits out. And not, there's some companies now apparently may even have uh, self-testing kits, which businesses could really tap into. Um, so I think you cannot keep everybody in their homes for two years. So we need to start to learn how we're going to roll this out and monitor this. And I also think, given past history, this isn't the only virus. There mm -hmm. could be another virus next year. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for your perspective on this, Lauren. We're going to link your article up on our social media page so that uh, people can see and, and read what you had to say. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. That's Lauren Falkenberg, Senior Associate Dean of Business at the University. It is 819 on the morning news. Soup Sisters is on a cross-country trek to deliver 5,000 pounds of donated soup nationwide to provide nourishment and comfort to families in crisis during the COVID-19 pandemic. To explain, we're joined by Soup Sisters founder Sharon Hapton. Hi, Sharon. Good morning. First off, Sharon, give us the Coles notes on what Soup Sisters is. Soup Sisters is a nonprofit organization that delivers soup nationally to women and children fleeing family violence and domestic abuse. We bring community people together for soup making events, which unfortunately are no longer. And uh, typically, what we do is we deliver soup made by the love of community people every single month to shelters nationwide. So what are you doing now, Sharon? Because I know, you know, I know people love getting on board with this, making soup, yeah. but nothing says love like a bowl of soup. So, so, so what do you do now that you're not able to have the groups come together to help? Well, we've had to reinvent the way we do things in order to maintain our mission. I think, you know, a month ago, like everybody else, we were all faced with the dilemma of how do we continue providing to do what we do um, for people everywhere. And um, I, I was very obsessed 
with the notion that we needed to continue now more than ever to provide soup to people. And um, we, uh, we just reinvented ourselves, basically. We're, we're having soup now um, produced in a food-safe commercial facility, and we've partnered with Versacold. Uh, they're a national refrigerated trucking company. And um, just last week, we delivered 5,000 pounds of soup to shelters right across the country. Awesome. Well, let's bottom line this, though. You, you are providing meals, which is a great thing. Could be any type of meals. Could be sandwiches, for example, right. or salads. What is it about soup? Uh, well, it's a universal comfort food. It really is. And um, so many people have that belief that when they're delivered soup, they're, they're really being shown care. Um, and um, it's, it's a meal in itself as well. It's very nourishing and substantial. So, Sharon, what can we do? What can we do to help Soup Sisters reach their loving goal? Well, what we've, what we've called our new mission is we've called it MISO. And if you go to our website, soupsisters.org, it'll explain MISO means money in soup out. So basically, uh, like every uh, nonprofit right now, everybody's looking um, for ways to sustain themselves um, and for donations. So donations to MISO will go directly to the next truckload of soup. And our, our plan really is to maintain that every single month. So in another two weeks, we'll have another 5,000 pounds of soup going out. We, um, we want to sustain who we've been all along. Where do the Soup Sisters come from? You know, who is your organization? Um, I started it here in Calgary 11 years ago. I was celebrating a milestone birthday. I invited 30 girlfriends to a soup-making birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're in 27 cities across the country. Sharon, any, any chance you know how many bowls of soup you've served? Oh, sure. Like, uh, probably two and a half million. Oh, that's amazing. Okay. Yeah. It's such a great initiative. I love that it's homegrown here in our city and you're just spreading it right across the country. So soupsisters.org, people can go there to, to help out. And as we come out the other side, I know you're always looking for volunteers too, right? Absolutely. And we've just had a string of volunteers uh, delivering in a different way. Now, uh, boxes of, you know, flash frozen fresh soup. It's different from how we usually do it, but everybody just lined up to make those deliveries. It's been incredible. Love it. Thanks for joining us, Sharon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Sue. That's Sharon Hapton, founder of Soup Sisters, and it's soupsisters.org. You can now request a story over the phone, maybe for you, maybe for the kids, maybe the whole family together. Doreen Vanderstoop of Storytelling Alberta is here to talk about story calls. It's a really neat program. You can request a storyteller to call you and give you a story for free over the phone. Good morning, Doreen. Good morning. Love this idea. Explain to us a little bit of the background and how this works. For sure. Well, I'll tell you a little bit first about what storytellers do, because it's an ancient oral art form, but not everybody knows about sort of the modern twist on this. So so we perform stories of all kinds, from myths and epics to historical stories to personal stories, family stories, folk tales. And, uh, and we normally do that in front of an audience. We go to uh, schools and we go to libraries and seniors' homes and we go to festivals and we have our own concerts. But, of course, all of our events have been cancelled. And so we thought, what perfect way to bring people together than, than through story? It's really the best way. And, uh, and what better way to do that safely is by uh, calling people with a story. From what I understand, you don't have a lot of rules when it comes to the stories, but they have to be oral. Tell us about that because it's very interesting. 
We do. We only have one rule, and the rule is we don't read. So we learn a story by heart. And so we talk about telling a story by heart from the heart. So our storytellers will find a story maybe online or they'll read it in a book or or it'll be an ancient text and uh, and they will learn it by heart and we we talk about it as 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 if you're living you're learning to live in your story as opposed to memorizing the story so we have we have a whole process that we use for for doing that and and it varies from one storyteller to the other but but the end result is that it's it's quite a magical combination between the story the storyteller and the audience um, whether it's an audience of one, as in our story calls, or a whole family, as you mentioned, Sue, um, or it's it's an entire audience in a in a concert hall, and that's where the magic happens because that interaction creates a different story each time. It's a different experience each iteration of that story. I mean, we've been telling stories since the beginning of time, so this is a beautiful way to bring that back. Who are your storytellers? Our storytellers are um, all ages. We range in age from uh, early 20s, and, and we actually normally do have even younger people telling telling stories because we have a, um, a youth teller program as well. Um, but our story calls storytellers range in age from um, 20s to 60s, and we have varied experience. I've been telling stories now for about six years. Others are a little bit newer to it, a couple of years. And then some of our tellers have been at it for 30-plus years and performing in all kinds of different venues and telling all kinds of different stories. The storytellers are ready. They just need the audience. How do people get in touch to get signed up to be told a story? Well, they can go to our website, storytellingalberta.com, and there is actually a request form that you can fill out, and that's under the contact section of our website. So you can just click on the Story Calls request form, fill in the information, and it comes to us directly. We will um, arrange to connect a storyteller to that the requester, um, and then we'll arrange for a story delivery time and date. Sounds great. Thank you very much for telling us all about it and sharing your story, Doreen. Well, thank you very much for asking and uh, stay safe, everyone. That is Doreen Vanderstoop of Storytelling Alberta.